Good morning. This week I was thinking about why we live in a country where the majority of people say that they are Christians. Yet, everywhere you look throughout this culture supposedly flooded with Christians, you do not see Christian behavior. You do not see God reflected. You do not see righteousness honored. And in fact, I would say many places where you look, you see the glorification of sin promoted and celebrated. How does that happen? How do you end up in a nation that 80% of the people say we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet as you look at that nation, its culture, its influence, and what it does, you go, I don't really see a whole lot of Jesus. It's not the Jesus that we see presented here in this gospel. And as we look at that, I think one of the main reasons why is I don't know how many people who call themselves Christians truly understand the gospel. How many of them truly understand the good news that is presented by Jesus Christ? In fact, I think there are many of us who have heard basic core truths over and over again in our lives, so much so that we think we understand them, we think we know them, but we actually have completely and utterly missed the point. We have this thing at work where uh, we use a lot of acronyms. Uh, we don't really call out what these things are. And so sometimes you'll be in this meeting as a new person in a new project and you'll be sitting around and everybody's using these acronyms and of course you don't want to look like an idiot so what you do when they're talking to you about these acronyms is what do you do? You just nod your head and smile. Oh yeah, uh-huh, mm-hmm, oh yeah, the knack. That's a, that's a tough one right there, right? Uh, it was funny though because a few months ago I had a new employee and so she was sitting with us through one of these meetings and we got out and she's like, okay, I got a few questions. Uh, what does ESG mean? We're all like, I, I don't know. And she's like, okay, what does NAC mean? And we're like, don't know. And we went through like four or five of these things that everybody in the room was talking about. And there's ten people all nodding their heads and smiling like they know what they're talking about. And not one of us could explain what those things were. <laughs> Why? Because there was a bigger pressure on us in that public setting to not look like idiots than there was to make sure we truly understood what we were talking about. You ever been there? You ever been in one of those settings where you, you don't have any clue what's happening, but instead of raising your hand and going, hey guys, I'm completely lost, you instead just act like you know what's happening. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, my greatest fear is that churches are full of people like that. People that came to church with a genuine need. Something with God calling them, pulling them, addressing an issue in their life, a gap in their spirit. And they came to God with a hunger and a desire. And when they got to church, they got a little taste of it. But what they quickly encountered was a culture they didn't completely understand. And what they decided they were going to do very quickly was fit in. Instead of asking questions that they thought might be dumb or stupid or too basic, they just start to adopt the characteristics of everybody around them. 
And they don't even know why they do that. They just do it because that was what they see everyone else doing. How many of us are confident that we could sit down with a stranger and that we could explain the gospel? How many of us feel we could sit down and articulate the problem that we're in, how we got into that situation, how Jesus came to save us from that problem, and what He does for us once we have Him in our lives? How many of us could walk people through that? How many of us ourselves can completely understand that? I'll give you a brief example. I I remember my time as a youth pastor. Uh, You know, I'd I'd be talking to these kids, and for the majority of the time, the kids in the youth group were church kids. Grew up in the church, raised in the church, everything in their life was churched. You'd talk to them, and they could give you every biblical answer. But then you'd ask them a question like, so what do you want to do when you graduate? I want to become a lawyer. Okay, why? So I can be rich. Now, the American part of us understands that, right? Our culture is about money. It's about power. It's about fame. It's about influence. And we understand that we are driving people in our culture to, if you have money, the world opens up for you. How does a child raised in the church by Christian parents with the good book of the Lord that teaches the love of money is the root of all evil? How do you raise somebody in that culture and then when they sit there and it's time to make a real decision, they go, you know how I'm going to do this one? Whatever gives me the most money. That's what I'm looking for. How'd that happen? happened because you had people going through the motions and not people living the real life. I want each and every one of us as we go through this series to really ask ourselves where we stand. Are we people that truly understand what we believe, why we believe it, and what it's done to our lives? Or are we people who are just trying to fit in at church? Are we people that are here because mom and dad brought me as a kid, this is all I know? Are you here because you like some of the people you're sitting next to? Are you here because it gives you some kind of peace that you're better than everybody else? Or are you here because you know the powerful presence of Jesus Christ? You're on fire to build His kingdom. And you know you need Him each and every day of your lives. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be going through, and over the next couple weeks, a story from Jesus called a parable. Now, parables were Jesus' way to communicate with people by taking unbelievably complicated truths, spiritual in nature, and bringing them down into a narrative that was more familiar to us. All right, so how do you explain God? Like, how many of you have had a, a child at your house go, so where did God come from? Right? It's a great question. But how do you explain to a child the existence of a God when He's the one that created time? Right? Like the whole framework of that question is where was God before creation? Doesn't make sense. There was no time until God said, I'm creating time. There's no such thing as before God. Because time didn't even exist until he was there. 
So how do you take a character like that, who can be anywhere, everywhere, at all times, at all places, know all thoughts, and explain them to people? Well, Jesus did that through parables. He did that by breaking down stories that you could put yourself in those people's shoes and understand their emotions and their feelings. He would show you through those an aspect of God. And so today we're going to start looking at God's unbelievable love for the lost. Now, one caveat before we jump in. When you hear that word, the lost, I hope that identifies you. Right, this is one big AA meeting where we're all addicted to sin. And so here, we are all the ones that show up humbly and go, I got a problem, it's called sin, and I need help. Amen. At no point do we ever think, we got this. Amen. What we acknowledge all days, all times, every moment, is that I alone, by myself, would be lost. It is only with my Father leading me that I can be on the right path. So open up your Bibles with me and let's go to Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, we're going to encounter a story that you've probably heard before even if you're not a Christian. Most people know the story of the prodigal son. In fact, that terminology, the prodigal one, has even gone into this mainstream culture. Right? The wayward one, the lost one. Now, I want to make sure as we go through this story that we are not missing some of the unbelievable beauty that God is pointing out to us. And, and this is kind of a, a side note to you, but I would encourage each and every one of you that reads your Bible, read to understand, not to get through a book. Anybody ever bought one of those read the Bible in a year plans or Bibles? You know the ones? Right, they break down the whole Bible into 365 sections. Every day you read a little bit of the old, a little bit of the new, a psalm, a proverb, and you should get through the whole thing in one year. I actually kind of don't like those. You know why? It encourages you to be motivated by the pace by which you read instead of the level of understanding by which you had. I'm perfectly fine if it takes you two months to get through one story. If... In that two months, you pull out real truth, real knowledge, real wisdom. And not only do you listen to it, not only do you read it, but you take it in and you make it part of you. You obey it. And so I'd encourage each and every one of you as you go through these studies, break things down. Look at them in the littler of details and make sure you're understanding what God is saying. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. This is Jesus with the parable of the prodigal son. And he, that being Jesus, said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his own stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up, go to my father, and will say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead, and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Stop there for right now. As we break this down, it's important to make sure we understand the context of what's happening here and all the emotions around it. The first part I think you and I absolutely can understand in our own setting. Right? This son goes to his father. And he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. I want it now. And not only does he want his inheritance now, but he wants that inheritance so he can do what? So he can leave. So he can leave home, he can leave his dad, and he can go away. Now let me just translate that to you. That's like going to your father and going, I wish you were dead. If you were dead, my life would be better. The one thing holding me up from living my dreams, Dad, is you. Now, I don't know how you were raised, but I can tell you if I go to James Gradeless, my father, and go, Dad, I wish you were dead. One of us would be dead at the end of that conversation. It would not be him, though. Can you imagine going to your relative and doing this? Like, even in our own culture... If you're lucky enough to have relatives who actually have any wealth, I don't. Can you imagine going to one of them and going, I need my inheritance now? Would that be popular? Would that be well looked upon in our culture and society? Would your family members take that well? No, not at all. This young son goes to his father and goes, I want my inheritance now. And here's the interesting thing. The father gives it to him. Right? The father doesn't say no. The father actually divides up his wealth and gives his younger son what he wants. And he goes off and he squanders that wealth. Now let's pause right there and let's look at this story and ask ourselves a few questions. As we look at this story, If it's a parable, then that means each of these characters is representative of somebody. So who do we think the Father is representative of? Probably God, right? Good guess there. And the two sons, who do you think they represent? They represent us. Now, for you to fully understand the weight of this and how much God or in this case Jesus, is calling people back to understand the ways of the world, I actually want you to rewind with me all the way to Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, rewind with me. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to understand how Jesus is setting up this entire story. Because this moment of the young man asking his father to give him his inheritance 
so that he can leave the presence of his father. That is not a new thing for us. That is actually where the world begins. All right, Genesis chapter 3, let's look at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw this, the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to them, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of your voice, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Oh, this is so typical of men. The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And she said, The serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. So let's break down a few things here. One, I've said this before, but I'll just say this again. Don't forget as Christians that we sometimes ask people to believe in things that at first first glance is going to be hard to swallow. How many of you have run into talking snakes? <laughs> right? In fact, if I put on a movie and the animals start to talk, what do we immediately assume? Not a true story, right? Yeah. Does anybody watch any of those Disney films and go, is this based on a true story? <laughs> no. Talking animals typically fall into fantasy land. And so, do not be shocked when you talk to somebody who's not a believer and you start hearing them and they go, talking animals. Uh, come on, guys. <laughs> Look, there are things in Scripture that are hard to deal with. Why? Because we're not used to seeing them. We're not used to experiencing them. And in the mindset and the experience that we have before us, we go, that's impossible. But just remember, folks, Throughout history, many of the things that have occurred and happened, we would say are impossible. All the scientists in the world who have all the chemicals and tools and capabilities in the world still can't explain to us how life happened. Yet you look around a room every day and what do you see? Thousands of people who are alive. Each and every one of them scientifically unexplainable. Yet here we are. All of us will encounter things that are different than what we've seen and what we experience. And so what I want you to first see about this story in Genesis chapter 3 is that this is the beginning of the prodigal son story. And if we don't understand this, if we don't understand the setting, and we don't understand how these people get lost, we miss all the value of what's happening here. And so the first thing I want you to see as we look at this is I want you to look at the permissive will of God. 
permissive will of God. What this means, folks, is, is that God is not just this mean man on a throne who sits down and goes, boom, that's happening, boom, that's happening, boom, that's happening. I think many of us have this idea that God rules with an iron hand. And that if we're not careful, if we're not patient, if we're not measured, He will strike thunder down upon us. In fact, if you ever want to know why you can guarantee people think of that, look at the Catholic tradition. The Catholic tradition has built itself around praying to saints and praying to Mary. Why? Isn't that strange to you? Right? If you have the ability to actually go to God directly and pray to God directly, why wouldn't you? Why would you do that? I know the answer to this. It's the same reason why when I was at home as a child and I needed permission from dad, I didn't go to dad. I went to mom to see if mom would ask dad for me. Why? Because I knew mom was softer than dad. Right? Especially if it was something where I'd messed up. I broke something, I'd forgotten to do something, I'd lied about something. If I knew it was going to come out, who did I want to hear about this first? Mama. Oh, Ma. Ma, let me tell you what happened, Ma. Right? And hopefully Ma would deal with it and get to Dad, and by then she'd calm him down. Right? Because I did not want to deal with the wrath of Dad. Well, people built that same image of God. People have built the same image of God and gone, God is the punisher. God, God is so wrathful. You've got to watch yourself in front of Him. You say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing, He'll smite you. He'll damn you. You don't believe me, just look at the first story here. These people eat the wrong piece of fruit and He kills them. And so... In that tradition, what's happened is they've taught people to go to somebody who's more compassionate, softer, appeal to them, and have them go in their good graces to God and see if they can get God's favor for you. There's a problem with that. Well, there's two problems with that. One, no human being can hear you in heaven. The only people who can hear you in heaven are God. Amen. No one else. Amen. Second, it has the completely and utterly wrong perception of God. And it all comes from this first story here. So understand how things work. Who created the universe? God did. He created the universe and He created it without flaw. He created this beautiful world, a beautiful garden, a beautiful people. And He made them good. But He gave them choice. He gave them the ability to choose whether they would love Him or they wouldn't love Him. He allows them to choose their own path. And that is a huge thing for you and I to understand because this is where everything goes wrong. Many people have this perception of God that He built everything he built us as sinners. He built us to be tempted. He set us up to fail. And then when we do, He smacks us down 
and then demands that we worship him and do all kinds of good deeds to get back in his good graces. And many people hear that story and go, that sounds sadistic. He builds you as a sinner. He puts you in a bad world. You mess up. And then he wants you to owe him? I was telling people on Friday, uh, Wednesday night, it's like the, the firefighters you read about who set the fires and then go in to save them. They're not heroes. All they're doing is cleaning up their own mess. And many people have that view of God. I'm a sinner. Who made me that way? But the world's broken. Who made it that way? But here's where that whole story's wrong. God made it beautiful. God made it without flaw. God made you without flaw. But he gave you a choice. Do you stay with him? Do you love him and obey him? Or, or do you choose your own way? What Eve started here, and each of us has chosen as we live on through life, is that we want to go our own way. And the actual beautiful thing about God is, he lets you do that. Think about it from the perspective of a creator. How many of us have started some project, wrote a paper, started something of our own creation, and, and just as you start it, it just isn't what you want. So what do you do? You just throw it away. You just start over. Right? And I can't tell you in college how many papers I would start, like, first page in, just crumble it up, throw it away, and start over, because it was junk. God doesn't do that. He gives this permission and he goes, you guys choose. And so what's important to understand about that is is that in God giving permission for us to choose, who really is the responsibility of breaking everything on? Us. God didn't make you a sinner. God didn't make a broken world. God didn't even choose death for you. You did. When we decided we didn't want to go His way anymore, we disconnected ourselves from the source of life. And God allowed us to run in the wrong direction. But we chose that. Just like at the beginning of the story of the prodigal son, the son comes to the father and goes, I want my inheritance. I want it now so I can go live my life. And what does the father say? Okay. If that's really what you want, I'll give it to you. Now, that gets us to one place, but it doesn't solve the problem because it leads to a logical question. Why? If God really desired for everything to be perfect, why do this? Why give us choice? Why be so permissive? Why not right before Eve's about to eat this fruit, which, by the way, was not an apple. We always picture it as an apple, not an apple. We don't know, but not an apple. Why doesn't he pop down and go, no, don't eat it? Why doesn't he zap the tree away? Why does he even have the tree there? What if there was no tree? Then there's no way to mess up. Everything runs perfect forever. Why not just do that? Right? Who puts a ticking time bomb in the middle of their creation? Why does he do that? He does it because of this. The unbelievable power of love. 
Brothers and sisters, if you and I live in a world where there is no choice, if we live in a world where there is no free will, what also is there not? Love. Love cannot be forced. Hey, how many of you in high school wish that wasn't true? Do we ever have that person you're just like, oh, I love them so much. Why can't they see I'm awesome? And you're just trying to convince them that you're amazing. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how you treat them. For some people, it's just like, not going to happen. Right? N never happened to me. Yeah. But you can't force someone to love you. They have to choose to love you. They have to choose to be with you. They have to choose to be in your presence. They have to choose to walk by your side. They have to choose to be there each and every day. And if you don't give them free will, if you don't give them choice, then love doesn't exist. Amen. And so I want you to listen. If you take away only one thing from this sermon, let it be what I'm about to say right now. God's unbelievable point to us is all this pain, all this hurt, all the darkness that you see around yourself each and every day, it is all worth it for love to exist. It's all worth it for us to know what love is. That's why God isn't just loving. God is love. And what you and I miss so often with God is He's not wrath and judgment. He's not angry and upset. He's this unbelievable being of love. And so think about all the negative things that have happened in this world. Think of every war. Think of every natural disaster. Think of every family member that's watched somebody die of some disease. Think of all that pain just gathered up in one place. And here's what God says about that. As ugly and as painful and as hurtful as that is, it's worth it for you and I to know what love is. And you know what's real? We know this. We know this. I remember watching my grandfather pass away. I remember being... I remember being in that room with him. And the pain that existed from watching somebody that you love go. And knowing, no more conversations, no more telephone calls, no more watching a basketball game together, no more of all those things that you love and that you cherish and that you want. And it rips you up. But what's amazing is I know this. If you would go, Luke, I could get rid of all that pain, all that hurt. I'll just make it so he never existed. You think I'd ever take that? I'd sit in that room and watch him die a hundred days for the time that I had with him. Because that love, it's worth it. That love that we had for each other, that willingness to joyfully sacrifice for one another, it's the greatest gift in the entire world. Amen. I'll take all the pain in the entire universe to know that feeling. And what I can tell you is, the more people I love in my life, the more I know this truth. I'll be real with you. 
you guys bring lots of pain my way. <laughs> it's been a rough week if you've been paying attention to anything happening. But you know what? It's all worth it. Because for every hospital visit, for every funeral, for every illness, for every sickness, for every accident, for every bad thing that happens, there's the fact that I get to look around the room and go, look at this family that God has brought together. Look at the joy that we get to share with each other. Look at the fact that we all get to celebrate the fact that Dan brought a new baby into this world. Well, not really Dan, Margaret more so, but Dan will give you the credit since you're here. We get to share in all these wonderful, beautiful things. And what we all know internally is even after we've been through the worst, we take all of it for the love. And that's God's point to you and me. He knew when He gave us free choice. He knew when He gave us that option that we would mess it all up. He knew that we'd cause all this disease, all this pain, all this hurt, all this death. And He knew it and still did it. Why? Because He also knew all the love that we would create. And that was worth it. See, one day, the love will come and redeem it all. One day, the love will wash over all the pain and all the hurt. One day, the love will come in with light and wipe away every amount of darkness. See, the love at the end will stand. And that's why He did it. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is the Son didn't understand this. But when He said, I want to leave you, Father, I want your stuff, He missed in that moment that He was disconnecting Himself from the life and the love that he'd always known. You and I should not be terrified to be in the presence of God. And not because he's not all-powerful. Not because he's not unbelievably amazing. But because at the end of the day, what we know about him is, he's love. He's the most loving being in the universe. And so when we understand that truth and we know that truth, we start to realize, why would I ever want to leave? And so the final thing I want you to think about today is that itself. The presence of God is life. So rewind again with me. Go back not just to Genesis 3, but a little bit earlier in creation. In Genesis chapter 2, remember how it says man is created. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So God takes us. He forms us from dirt. And how do you and I become alive? By Him breathing into us. Why that's so important, brothers and sisters, is what that's teaching us is you and I live because of our connection to God. So, let's rewind on this story a little bit because I think most of us get it wrong. I think many of you would have told the creation story this way. God created a beautiful world. God created beautiful people. But those people made a bad decision and disobeyed God. And because they disobeyed God, God punished them with death and pain and hurt. And God said, but I will make it okay. One day I will send my son as a sacrifice for you, and he will die to pay the debt that you owe me, 
And then all will be made right. And while that story is unbelievably close, the problem with it is it puts all of the death and the hurt on God's plate where it never should have resided. How the story really goes is God created a beautiful world and He created a beautiful people. And because the most cherished thing in the universe to Him is love, He gave them choice. And their choice was very simple. They could choose to stay united and connected and in love with God and He would pour life and light and love into them each and every day just as He had from the moment He created them. Or they could choose to break that relationship and go their own way. The unfortunate part is they chose to break that relationship. And what they didn't realize is, is that the moment they severed themselves from God, they severed their connection to life itself. We're the ones that chose death. We're the ones that broke everything. The beauty of our God, though, is, is He didn't stop there. In the very pages that follow the fall of man, God promises in the very moment where He's explaining how things will work, He tells them, One day, Eve, one of your children will come, and He will crush the head of the serpent, the one that brought this temptation, this one that led you away. He will crush that serpent's head, and He will make everything right again. And who He was talking about was the Son, Jesus Christ. See, the beauty of our Father is, is in the very moment in which we're choosing to mess everything up, He's already making a plan to bring us back home. Amen. He already, in unbelievable love, is figuring out how He's going to fix what we messed up. And so brothers and sisters, if you want something to be thankful for in this life, do not be thankful for your car or your house or your job or your health. Do not be thankful for these things that you hold in these hands but can be taken from you in an instant. Be thankful for the things here in your soul that can't be touched. Be thankful for the breath of life that God has given you that allows you to live and to feel His love and to feel His presence. Be thankful for a Father who loves you so much that even after you chose to run the wrong way, He was willing to sacrifice Himself to bring you back. That is the unbelievable gift that we get through God. Let me do with two things. One, all of this sets up the prodigal son. The prodigal son that leaves represents Adam and Eve. He represents that child who is more in love with the things God the Father had than God Himself. And in His free will, He chose those things instead of the giver who had made those things. And just like we will see with Adam and Eve, what that son has chosen, he just doesn't know it. Because he's chosen death. 
shows him pain. But the beauty that we'll see in that story, the beauty that we see in our own story, is that our Father is always looking to bring us back home. Look at John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit that lives in you, they are only there to fill you with life and to fill you with love. And brothers and sisters, once you've tasted what life is like with God, it should be so rich, so abundant, so full that you never want to go anywhere else again. And so I pray that you guys will seek out God yourself. That you'll make sure in your life that you have that same choice. Follow God the Father and be connected to His light and His love and His life. Or be your own God and see where that takes you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And we're so thankful that you never give up on us. Father, that no matter how bad we mess things up, no matter how much we anger you or run against you or tell you to get lost, Father, that you're always there on the horizon, watching and waiting, ready with open arms and a loving heart to take us back home. Father, as we go through this week, I pray, Lord, that we will remember the original intent of the season. That instead of us being consumed with Black Friday sales and what materialistic things we're lacking, that, Father, we will look around this world and be thankful for everything you've given. For the things, Lord, that can never be taken. Your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness, your gentleness, Lord. Father, we love you. And we thank you for letting us be your children. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll be down here at the front if you have anything you'd like to pray about. Brother James will not be in the back because I think he's somewhere else. So you have to come to the front if you want to pray. Because you can't pray just where you're at. God won't hear you. That's how it works. It only works right here and only in the next 10 minutes. If you don't finish in the next 10 minutes, sorry, window's closed. You won't. I'm lying. Don't listen to any of that. You can pray anywhere, anytime, about anything, and he will hear you. But if you do want someone to pray with you about something, feel free to seek me out during this or even after. Maria? Let's all stand.
such a blessing to worship with you. Uh, one thing I should have explained to you guys. I didn't hurt myself. I dyed a sweater and the gloves I was wearing were not effective. <laughs> it actually was a whole purple hand yesterday. You probably didn't pay attention to anything I was saying during the whole sermon just watching my hand going, what did he do? <laughs> it doesn't look swollen. It just looks weird. I'm sorry. I should have addressed that. I was going to wear a glove, but then I thought maybe thought I had a Michael Jackson thing. So I just, you know... I, I, I should have addressed it at the beginning. Second, I hope you guys have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, we are not having services Wednesday night. We want you to have that time for to be safely traveling or be at home with family. But remember, it's not about the Black Friday sales. It's not about the things that you need or the Christmas presents. It's about being with those people that you love. Even when it's hard to love them, it's about being with those people that you love. Also remember, gluttony is a sin. So enjoy Thanksgiving. But take it easy. All right, take it easy. Are we decorating next week too, Brother Luke? We are decorating on the 1st. December 1st. What is it? Yes, Saturday, December 1st. So we will have Christmas decorating on Saturday, December 1st. Uh, if you're traveling, be safe. I love you all. May God bless you. Remember, you've been given a spirit of what? Power, love, and self-discipline, and you got a mission. Go make disciples that love God, love people, follow Jesus. God bless you all. Happy Thanksgiving. I was blind, now I'm seeing in colors. I was dead, now I'm living forever. I had failed, but you were my redeemer. I've been blessed beyond all measure. I was lost, now I'm found by the I've been changed from a I've been